I'm Dr. Michelle Plaster, and you're listening to Between Two White Coats, a podcast where we dig into key issues surrounding health and wellness. I'm a family medicine doctor, and my co-host, Amber Foster, is a family medicine nurse practitioner. In our combined 30 years in medicine, we've seen a lot. We're discussing some of our biggest questions, obstacles, and patient-centered advice in hopes of educating you and keeping you informed. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you have found this podcast helpful, give us a five-star rating and review. This helps other people find our podcast. And make sure you share it with your friends. Thank you for your time. We look forward to serving you. Welcome, welcome to everybody listening and watching today. We are thrilled to have a very special guest with us, Dr. Eric Flint, who uh, is one of our supporting oncologists in our community. And let me give you a little background about Dr. Flint. I apologize for all the accolades. It's never fun to sit and hear people (laughs) brag on you in your presence, but I would like to brag on you in your presence. Um, Dr. Flint is a practicing oncologist for 10 years. He is a certified cancer, he is certified in cancer genetics, board certified internal medicine, hematology, and medical oncology. And one of my favorite parts of his resume, he has served our country for 20 years, six years in the Army, 14 years in the Air Force, and he has been deployed as a trauma ICU physician to Afghanistan. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Uh, thank you to your service to your service to our country and to our community. Uh, Dr. Flint and his colleagues at University Cancer and Blood Center are some of my absolute favorite people because uh, as a doctor of any sort, primary care doctor, one of your worst days is the day that you tell a patient that they have cancer. There's so much that you know is overwhelming them with receiving that information. And uh, for any of you who have ever been to an oncology office and you think, I had to wait a little bit today, let me tell you why you sometimes have to wait in an oncology office. There is never a time that I call the university cancer office and say, I have a patient with a new diagnosis of cancer and I'd like to get him in as soon as possible because I don't want him to go home and ruminate about this diagnosis and have more questions than answers. And they say, send them over as soon as you're done talking to them. Um, That means everything to our patients. It means everything to us in primary care that we can give people the, um, let go right over and let's meet your oncologist right now. So thank you for what you do. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. So we're going to talk about a few different things with Dr. Flint. But the first thing I want to talk about is, For those of us who do primary care and we get to scatter some wellness visits and other things in our day, you don't get a lot of that. Uh, You you in oncology, I believe, have a real calling to what you do. What attracted you to oncology? Well, I think like uh, most of my other uh, healthcare uh, and physician colleagues, this is a calling. Uh, I uh, decided at a young age I wanted to help people. Uh, Unfortunately, in high school, my wife and I had a uh, we weren't married at the time, but we had a close friend in our class who died of cancer at the age of 14. And so uh, that sort of, uh, and she was involved in our church and, and a very uh, close friend. And that set me on this trajectory and, and was truly, uh, truly a calling. Um, and we're uh, going to talk a lot in this episode about uh, what is fairly new. And I think a lot of not only patients, but also physicians 
are somewhat uninformed about genetics and cancer. Um, what drew you to pursue a certification in genetics and oncology genetics? As we are watching in real time, genetics is becoming first and foremost a part of our treatment plan, not just in determining our patients at risk for cancer, but also how best to treat them. Uh, in modern oncology, the more I know about the patient, and that includes to the DNA level, the better I can develop a treatment plan for that patient moving forward. So it's exciting, it's cutting edge, and in oncology we try to keep pushing the envelope to do better at curing cancer. Dr. Flint, tell me, what is cancer? Cancer is your body gone wrong. These are defects in at the DNA level in cells in your body that decide not to behave because of changes in that DNA. And so uncontrolled cell growth um, that can have the potential to metastasize or another word for spread to other parts of the body um, is essentially what cancer is. You know, I, I, I think of this a lot when trying to help patients through things like get an abnormal CAT scan and it doesn't look like a big deal, but we'd like to repeat it in six months and see if it's changed, if it's grown. And I find myself saying to patients quite a bit, cancers grow, cancers um, are aggressive cells. They, and so just as you said, you know, our cells are turning over all the time. I, the majority of the cells in our body are, die and are reborn over and over. And that DNA is the recipe for how to do that. And if that recipe goes wrong, when they turn over, they'll turn over wrong. That's right. And then if they turn over wrong in certain ways, they can become cancer cells. So that recipe in the DNA not only tells the cell how to grow correctly or become a cancer cell, but it also gives us a recipe for recognizing who's going to be at risk of cancer cells or if there is cancer, how to best or appropriately treat those cancers. So let's start as we dig into genetics and cancer. Who should get genetic testing for cancers? So in general, those uh, patients with multiple family members with cancer are probably the, um, the ones that most need the genetic testing. But sometimes, depending on the type of cancer, take for instance ovarian cancer, if there is one family member with ovarian cancer in the family, even if that family member is no longer living, the closest relative, blood relative to that family member should consider getting genetic testing. And there may be no other um, uh, cancers in the family. So, so sometimes, depending on the type of cancer, um, it, it may not have to affect multiple family members. But also cancer at a young age. Um, so when we see breast cancer less than the age of 50, and now recently updated in the NCCN guidelines are triple negative breast cancer regardless of age, that one diagnosis mm. regardless of family history, should consider genetic counseling and testing. And part of that, that push is because we now recognize that these gene defects have to start somewhere. And so uh, although they are genetic and potentially germline, they may not have come to fruition um, in, a, in a family tree. And we don't want to miss those cases because it can affect treatment options. So I have patients that, uh, well, first, as far as just <clears throat> kind of finishing out on who should get genetic testing, um, from the primary care perspective, I would say it's complicated. Yes. There is no, there is no, if you have three family members, That's if right. you have one, 
Um, so exactly like you said, it depends on the cancer that your family member had, the age that they had that cancer, the more information that you can have. Um, you know, as, as we're, we're filming this near the holidays, and I always like to joke with patients, oh, you don't sit around at Thanksgiving and ask, <laughs> was, that a, was that an estrogen-dependent cancer that grandma had or not? Um, but the more that you can find the specific diagnosis, the more information that will give your physician to see if you're a person who meets the criteria for genetic uh, testing. But if you're not quite sure, it is a great conversation to have with your doctor. Yes, very um, much. And if you've had a conversation with your doctor and your doctor isn't quite sure, because in defense of all of us in primary care, genetics, like you've said, is a constantly growing and the information is changing all the time. So thank God for people like you who have done special extra training and certifications there are a number of different oncology centers, such as University Cancer, who have geneticists there, who have people with extra training, who have genetic counselors there. And you can meet with them and go through your family history, and they'll help you to know whether you are a person who should get tested, what testing would be indicated, and then help you receive that information as it comes back, which I think is a really important point because I say to people, would you like to have genetic testing? You have three or four family members with these different cancers. Would you be interested in knowing if you're at increased risk? And it's a hard question because people will frequently say, I don't want to walk around with that black cloud over my head. If I find out that I do have the genetics for this specific type of cancer, I don't know that I just want to carry that with me. And I think that people understanding that knowledge is power and like that, that knowledge is prevention as well. That if we know certain things and we can take certain actions, we can take the black cloud and take it away or make it much smaller and help prevent cancers. Yeah, I think that's, you said it very well, knowledge is power. And at the initial discovery of many of these mutations, take the BRCA gene for instance, uh, over uh, 20 years ago, we may have been able to tell you you had that mutation, but we didn't have much to do with it. We weren't even sure how best to screen you or how best to prevent. So some of that fear is a fear based on prior knowledge or lack knowledge or lack of knowledge in that room. And now, um, based off the gene, we have really good information about how to screen, how to prevent, or how to catch a cancer early when it is most likely to be curable. So having knowledge of a genetic predisposition to cancer is empowering for patients, for many patients, once, uh, once they have that knowledge. Then they could do something about it. Absolutely, and I find with more patients than not, once they are screened and find that they have a genetic risk, I feel like we help them manage the black cloud that is there anyway. Yes. When you have multiple family members who have cancer, I think you already yes. consider yourself a person who may get cancer. And, and you may be able to lift the black cloud from your children and offspring. So many times when we do find a genetic defect in a family, we're able to say that mom had the BRCA mutation and we test her daughters and they're all negative. We know that they were tested for the, mom, the mutation the mother carried but did not pass on to her children. Then we are also lifting that cloud. Yes, great point because just because you carry it doesn't mean you passed it on. You, you may have a, a good copy and a bad copy, That's and right. you don't pass on the bad copy. But if you carry it, I bet your children assume they do too. Yeah, yeah 
That's an excellent point. Thank you for that. Um, now let's say, let's use breast cancer as an example because I think it's a common one. BRCA has kind of been around the BRCA genes we've heard of more being the genes for breast cancer. Um, and so let's say someone does test positive for um, these specific genes that may increase risk of breast cancer. What, how would that information be used? Uh, so for, for instance, for the BRCA gene, for an unaffected family member, uh, generally we're talking about enhanced breast cancer screening. So not only would a, uh, a woman who is a carrier of the BRCA gene um, get mammography, but we are alternating typically with mammography and breast MRI every six months. <clears throat> we do talk to them about ovarian cancer screening, although we don't have great screening tests. They should consider a CA-125 uh, level testing as well as uh, pelvic exams and transvaginal um, ultrasonography to potentially catch that early. Um, additionally, we talk about risk reduction surgery. So we have them, um, when they have completed their childbearing consideration to be given in, in their mid-30s of having a um, bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy or um, re, re, and potentially removing um, uh, organs that may be uh, placing them at risk for cancer. Breast cancer, surgical prevention as well with uh, bilateral mastectomy. Now, I'm not Angelina's jo Jolie's doctor, uh, but if we <laughs> but follow... But she did a lot to did did get that. some information out, didn't she? You know, and let a famous person do something and be um, transparent enough to do it publicly. I think a lot of people became aware that... Um, these uh, risk reduction surgeries are options. And generally we're talking about uh, you know, 90% uh, decreased risk for, uh, uh, for surgical prophylaxis. Um, additionally, we have medical prophylaxis. So if a woman does not, uh, is not ready yet to have a mastectomy, and um, we talk about using drugs like tamoxifen to lower, to lower their risk for having breast cancer. And uh, so the different types of genetic screens that exist, if, if I'm listening to this and think, well, I've got a couple cancers in my family, are there cancers that stand out that we think those are more likely to be genetic? And if you have those cancers in your family, you should consider having this genetic screening conversation. So the triple negative breast cancer and, and an ovarian cancer in the family, regardless of the number, uh, those patients should consider testing. Um, uh, rare tumors like uh, medullary thyroid cancer are other tumors that I, I think should be considered. Young cancers at a young age, so sarcoma or leukemia at a young age, uh, certainly can mean that there is a gene defect in the family. What age would you define as young? Less than the age of 50. Okay. Um, tell us a little about, uh, we've talked about specifically with breast and how the genetic information is used to make screening recommendations. And I might add in, as I feel like a large portion of my job is not just ordering tests, but figuring out how to get them paid for, um, yeah. how do you get insurance to approve things. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, I don't want this. I, if I find out I have genetic something, insurances may drop me or... Um, but I've really found that when we find these things, we can get the breast MRIs covered. We can um, use this information and insurance then recognizes that there are other tests that need to be done and are more, more likely to comply with paying for those. So, so 
two parts to your question. One, there's some concern about discrimination, and so the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act of 2008, I believe, does provide you protection in, in such that you um, cannot be discriminated against for carrying a certain gene. The only caveat to that would be life insurance, uh, and so I encourage all my patients that are considering genetic testing to make sure their life insurance policies are up to date uh, as they talk about their their life planning for their family. In terms of uh, medical insurance, the, the Affordable Care Act did do away with discrimination in the insurance setting for the carriers of certain mutation. And as you so mentioned, this actually helps you get approved for the screening test because you may have, um, your physician may want you to have a breast MRI uh, out of a concern for a family history or a concern on mammography, but we may have trouble getting that approved if you have this genetic testing where it's clearly spelled out that you need um, magnetic resonance imaging screening, then it would be more likely to be approved by your insurance. Now help me understand, I, uh, I've i started doing, I have some cancer history in my own family and um, years back when I was getting my MRI, the um, imaging center counseled me, which I thought was amazing. And as a physician sitting there, it uh, brought some honesty to me to think I need to be doing a better job of helping my patients who want genetic screening to be able to get it. And genetic screening was less available and less covered, and this predates the Affordable Care Act and some other things, but it really opened my eyes to um, start doing this in a primary care setting better. I chose to get genetic screening at that time for a grandmother who had ovarian cancer and died from it. Um, and screened negative for everything, but was thrilled for the opportunity to uh, recognize that I didn't have an increased genetic risk to be recognized in that testing. Um, And it gave me some information as to how worried to be and what kind of extra screenings I may need to do. Um, But now, so we've really embraced doing genetic screening for our patients and, um, and trying to recognize and there are some for any of my primary care colleagues who have shied away from this. Um, the genetic uh, labs ha- supply some great questionnaires. We have one that is on an iPad and you answer all the questions based on the patient's history and it really spells out for you what, what testing they qualify for from an insurance coverage perspective or what testing should or should not be indicated. So it helps me to even not feel as overwhelmed with am I ordering the right test and have I done this correctly especially as it's changed quite a few times since we started doing it on the recommendations. Um, But I'll get information back, and then I sometimes feel a little overwhelmed with what to do with this information. Um, So when I have a patient, or if there's a patient out there who's, who's screened positive for things but has questions, where do we go from there? So at University Cancer and Blood Center, we have a genetics program. Um, we have a, a genetic counselor that is willing to sit with the patient and, and review those tests and what screening recommendation um, would be uh, recommended uh, based off those test results. Additionally, we can help uh, manage that. So um, many of the cancer syndromes have screening recommendations for multiple cancer types, and that can be a very uh, complex um, discussion to have with the patient and also to, to manage to make sure every uh, screening test is done. Everything from uh, your analysis screening once a year uh, to mammography and, and MRI. And uh, and so uh, feel free, I, you know, encourage patients that want to 
know more information about their test results or their doctor wants them uh, to um, to see somebody specialized in genetics, we take those referrals and help you manage, help you decide what needs to be done. That is so helpful too, because in the midst of trying to do all the preventive stuff, you really don't want to miss anything and things like making sure that you've you've checked all the boxes specific for this patient. Um, you've mentioned in conversation with me before about how genetics really is very personalized um, medicine. Um, tell me about how that works to, you know, now that we have this information that's more available and we've done, we, we've come so far in genetics, um, how does knowing someone's genetics and getting these results help us to uh, personalize medicine down to that person? No, I, especially, well, we've talked mainly about prevention. So knowing you're a carrier of a, mut- a, carrier of a mutation to have additional screening tests. But in the patient that is affected with cancer, having this knowledge allows us to know how to treat them. This is personalized medicine at its best. Um, In the last several years, we now have drugs that target many of these genes that can be used as part of treatment in the metastatic or stage four setting. And we also have uh, sometimes use those drugs in what we call the maintenance setting. So take for BRCA-associated ovarian cancer. Um, If uh, those patients are found to have um, a BRCA mutation or BRCA-like mutation, um, after traditional chemotherapy and surgery for an otherwise curable malignancy, we offer them maintenance therapy for a pill, which can keep them in remission, and it also saves lives. Uh, And that is personalized medicine. So that's why genetics is so exciting. not just in the prevention piece, but also if you are affected with cancer, it affects your outcomes and your treatment options. Um, this is so helpful for me, so much information. I hope all my colleagues listen too, because I, I really think this is such a turning point. And for those of us who do more diabetes than we do cancer, praise God, that you know my, my patients uh, don't have a, a lot of uh, cancer diagnosis, but this really allows us to know, are we doing everything from a preventive perspective? And uh, and then when that information comes in, to not be overwhelmed with it, but to know exactly how to use that information and empower ourselves to better protect our patients. Um, and for any patients who have a family history, to know that this information can really empower you to know how to be aggressive and prevention, early detection, best treatments, um, through the very personalized aspect of genetics uh, in medicine. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add about uh, genetics and, and cancer? I, one of the questions that we get fairly commonly for maybe a young woman who has a family history of breast cancer who is concerned about how this would impact her children and uh, when to test my children. So uh, if a woman comes and is found to have a BRCA mutation, for instance, and has uh, young children to five years old, um, when do I test my children? That's a very common question. Well, thankfully, 99% of the known cancer uh, genes do not affect our children. Um, There are only a few that we would recommend them being tested as a child. For the most part, um, we recommend testing uh, children of affected parents after they become 18 years of age. And also a caveat to that, 18, so that would be the legal age that the child 
who would be, then be an adult could consent to uh, have an informed consent to that testing. Sometimes I also talk about a maturity age, and not every 18-year-old is able to um, uh, take that information and um, know what to do with it. Uh, so that may be 22 for your child. But regardless, we're not testing uh, in our pediatric population uh, for the most part. Oh, that's excellent information. And actually very helpful for me to know that too, that this allows, and I think that takes some pressure off of parents and trying to make a decision for someone else um, that we don't have to worry about the child being affected until later in life. And so we have time to allow them to decide and receive the information when they're ready to. Um, perfect. Um, excellent information about genetics and cancer. I would really I want to just empower anybody who has a family history of cancer or concerns um, as to whether their risk is higher than average to have a discussion with their primary care um, or if they feel like they've not been able to get appropriate answers to look at uh, our local oncology offices that do genetics. Um, and and sit down with a genetic counselor to go through and see what's appropriate and very you know specific to them what's our best way to move forward. Dr. Flint, I have learned a lot today. I am confident that all of our listeners have learned a lot today, and I really want the takeaway message from this to be that genetics empower us. They give us information so that we can have prevention, early detection, and be more aggressive so that we catch cancers and and people can live and, and do well, as opposed to cancer being that uh, C word diagnosis. And so I, I, I thank you for helping get information out to people. Um, thank you all for joining us today. And I would like to uh, invite you to join us in our next uh, podcast where we will have more with Dr. Flint. And we're going to be talking about cancer treatments. Uh, cancer treatments have come so far and, and we're going to dig into all the different types of treatment so that everyone can be informed that cancer is not the old fashioned chemotherapy of 30 years ago. Um, and get us some information on if there is a cancer diagnosis, how do we, where do we go from there? Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you'll listen in when we have more from Dr. Flint. We like to end each episode on a positive note. So here's today's Tell Me Something Good. Something good is science. Science allows us to get smarter and continue to improve the kind of medical advances and treatments that are available to us. I know that in the past year and a half of pandemic, science has been frustrating for people because information changes. But as information changes, it's because we are learning things and getting smarter. So I am thankful for science and I believe it is truly something good. Thank you for joining us today, and until next time, take care of yourself.